Hello. Hello, John. How's it going? You're having a little bit of a little bit of a bouncy day, is uh, that right? Yeah, it's trying to get everything sent back up again. You know how that is. You know how, how mo- anytime you move like a mic, you move one cable and there you have to redo everything. It's just what happens. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yesterday, I uh, uh, hilariously, you know, I I I I've moved in partially to my new house. And yeah. I, I I took uh, I took my recording rig over there to record Roderick on the line, and then yesterday I. Uh, was recording Omnibus because as you and I both know, we do podcasts. Yes. So we're recording them all the time. <laughs> and so uh, usually I try to walk between the two houses and uh, I am still going to have to do Omnibus over here at my daughter's mother's partner's house um, <laughs> for a while because we have a big table here and I don't have one at my house. So right. I walked over and I got here. I came downstairs. Ken was already here sitting in the chair and I sat down and I realized I didn't have my computer. I left it over at my house. Oh. So we got in the car. We drove over to my house. We got the computer. Uh, we drove back. You know, Ken is very patient, but he also has, there's certain spots where Ken gets uh, a little testy about time or you know like i'm pretty lackadaisical and he's very he's very list driven oh right of course and so we get back we come downstairs i plug my computer in we're sitting at the table and i look and i don't have my uh audio to digital interface oh, i don't I, have you need that I, uh, you need it and i looked at him and i was like oh man I left the other thing at my house. So Uh. we got back in the car and we drove back over and got the other thing. It was a real goof story. So I know what you mean. You're plugging in stuff. You're unplugging stuff. Pretty soon you don't have the stuff you need. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten pretty good at putting things back, taking them apart, putting them back together. Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm I'm competent at that now. But um, it's still, there's always a little something. And, you know, you yeah. unplug something and when you plug it in, the, de- the the device default, people love this. I think this is why people are here to hear this oh, sure. talk. Oh, for sure. For sure they are. Mm-hmm. For sure they are. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're moving and, you know, I know you're very reticent to talk about Dan Benjamin's personal life mm-hmm. on road work. Mm-hmm. Do you talk about it on your other shows? No. Do you have a Dan Benjamin after dark where you're like, oh no. man, things are going, you know, haywire and I wish I did because then I then I'd be making the big Patreon money like you. If people knew what was <laughs> really going on, I'd be I w- I would be able to to uh, rake it in just out of you pity. Know, pity. I don't you know it wouldn't be empathy, it wouldn't be sympathy, it would be mm-hmm. just straight up pity. Now I have to say that uh, you and I have talked about this offline quite a bit, and I'm not going to out you in any way, uh, <laughs> except to say to our listeners that yeah. you know Dan is a is a very good interviewer. He spends a lot of time interviewing, and there there I think can be the mistaken impression that you are a cipher, that the things that you do reveal are like oh I, you know I, I live in a house and I do a meditation and I <laughs> and I. I go to the doctor a lot and I, and I have back problems and I wear hats. Or <laughs> I don't, whatever, I don't but, have the problems anymore. I'm all fixed. Whatever it is that you give away to people and yeah. they think, oh, well, Dan just sort of goes through life and he has some opinions about things, uh-huh. but they have no idea what, uh, what your last couple of years have been like. No. And I have to say, I have just a report as your friend mm. that you have been experiencing an incredibly intense overwhelmingly intense journey that would kill a normal man. 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if I had been placed in the position that you've been in for the last couple of years, yeah. I don't know if I would have walked away. Well, that's so, nice of you to say, John. Thank you. Well, it's it's incredible that you show up at these at these shows every every day with the with the kind of equanimity and calm that you bring. It's astonishing, and I really think that that all of your fans <clears throat> would would benefit from you doing a doing a show or two where you outlined your experiences because they're I think your I think your experiences are shared in part by a lot of people. And it would, you know, I think it would really humanize you, but I understand that you can't or feel like you can't mm -hmm. because it's just like, where do you start? Yeah. Set, set the way back machine to all the way back. Yeah, I know. Right. No one has I that don't, much I, time. I, think. I don't mean to tantalize people, although I do because yeah, I think no, you, you clearly should, do. I think you should be put under some pressure by people saying, we love you, Dan. We'd like to know more. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many paywalls we'd have to put it behind before you felt comfortable. There aren't. There, it's paywalls all the way down. I don't know if there are enough paywalls. But I mean, if how about this? If I do talk about it, it will be with you. Uh, here on, on this show. On this show or, or yeah. wherever you would deem appropriate place to talk about it. Yes, okay, I would good. say here. I would say here. Good. If it's going to come out as a, a story that I tell, I will, I will share it uh, here. And, um, but you know, don't, I don't want anyone to get their home. You know, I, I don't mind if people think that I'm just sort of, uh, you know, I think the impression that people have of me is so different from the reality. Uh, and that's, that's nobody's fault, but mine, if there is even a fault, I'm fine with it. But it couldn't possibly be further from what my life is actually like, what people think, like people are. Um, they, I think they sort of imagine that I have like a very, you know, kind of, they, I think they imagine like a strict routine that involves lots of hand washing and, <laughs> you know, laundering of shirts and ironing. Um, you know, everything is perfect and organized and I, I, every drawer is knolled properly. And yeah, that's and, right. You know, that's kind of what I think they think. And while some of those things may, especially the hand washing are certainly true, uh, it's not... I would say that's about where it ends. Mm -hmm. And um and and I'm always I'm a little bit you know how John how you told me how you would um you might be at a friend's house and you might lay something on a pillow. I'll let you know that's your story to tell, but you would lay <laughs> something on a pillow and then withdraw it and no one would know except you. Mm. <clears throat> Do you remember mm. that story? Not not sure. Not I'm sure. sure the, you, I'm but... sure the guy that catalogs all of your stuff will remember it yeah. but okay. um and as i'll leave it as an exercise for the listeners to remember that as well but what i um you know that's that's a private thing for you and so if you know it's kind of you get your own little laugh i'm always entertained by what people think and i realize that it's probably because the it's not like i'm a different and you can i think you would agree with this maybe um you know me offline and you've known me for a while on and offline and you're one of the few people that I share things with uh personal things and so I think you can you could probably agree that I'm the same off off the air and in person as I am on the air it's just the percentage of what I share privately versus on the air is the only difference like I'm not like like we don't hang up and then I'm like 
a completely different person. I'm the same. True. I just yes. share a, a lot less. And I think you're right in that it would help people. Like I, I sometimes I'll read things that other people will share. And I'm like, wow, the thing that happened to me is so much worse than what this person, I know it's not, you're not supposed to compare with other people and everything is relative. And yes, there's people starving in China or wherever. And you know, I like, I get it, but like, I'll hear someone tell a story and mine's so much worse than that. And they're getting all of this empathy and sympathy and everything else from everyone. I'm like, yeah, I could use some of that, but I would have to, I would have to tell the story. And so yes. I don't. And, uh, and that, that happens to not happen. So. Yeah, well, but I'm okay with uh, it. I'm okay with it. I know you are, um, <clears throat> but you know I have a philosophy of of sharing, mm. right? Like there, I never feel uh, like I'm oversharing because oversharing is a kind of thing, you know. Like yeah. when someone when someone like gives you too much information, right? Um, you start to get uncomfortable, and you're like, ah, I don't uh, <laughs> that. I don't know you well enough to know all this stuff. Right. And I think that it's one of the parts of that defines what over that makes oversharing oversharing is that the, there's the implication that the person who is receiving the sharing doesn't want to know it. Right. Like, like, right. It's like if you're starting necessary. to, you know, like you're talking about how you had like an infected toenail, you're like, I'm probably oversharing. Like, yeah, you kind of are. Uh -huh. But like, I don't feel like you can overshare in this context here. No, and I think I think the the value of it is, you know, I when I uh, when I talk about all my travails over the course of a, of many decades, it's, you know, I'm extremely, um, I uh, like, I am not interested in people's sympathy, right? And when mm -hmm. I talk about things that <clears throat> that have happened that have hurt, or things that have happened that are that are bonkers. Um, people do offer their sympathy and I, and I'm, I, I try to be gracious, but you know, that's not what, what I'm doing. And hopefully everything I share helps other people experience those things in their own lives and not feel alone and not feel down and not feel like, uh, you know, not feel persecuted, uh, which I think happens to a lot of people, oh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Something, you know, they, they experience a rough patch or, or bad things happen and they feel very much like, why is this happening to me? Um, and so a lot of, you know, a lot of my impulse is to just relieve that pressure on people by saying, well, all that stuff happened to me right. and it's, it's not weird and it's not personal. It's just like life deals you some blows. And sometimes those blows include losing your front teeth in a, in a fight. And uh -huh, sometimes, yeah, right. sometimes they include just not being able to make your end or, or mm -hmm, whatever. Mm -hmm. But in your case, I really feel like aspects of your story. Some of them are, <clears throat> are among the things they're very, they're very recently themed in mm. some cases, mm. right? Like things that are happening to you, uh, in the last couple of years are not, things that would have happened to somebody necessarily in the 1970s. Okay. Yeah. Um, except in the, in the very most general sense, but, but a lot of what's happening to you is very specific to our time mm. and, you know, kind of like what happened to me earlier this year, very specific to our time. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of people suffering in silence 
or suffering like unable to, uh, you know, like unwilling or unable to, to reveal what's going on because it's embarrassing or it's, um, it's just destabilizing. So destabilizing. Yes. And the fact that you keep your, your general level of competence and just, and it may be the way that you cope is just more hand washing. Um, <laughs> but you know, all your experiences with the, with anxiety and all your experiences uh-huh. with all these things, the fact that, that what's, what's been going on in your life hasn't triggered these things to incapacitate you. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you, you sharing your story wouldn't just flesh you out as a, as a character, an online personality. Mm. But I think it would also, what I've discovered is you can never know what your, who your story is going to reach and how it's going to help them. Right. And I, all the time people will reach out and, and you know, they're quick to say like, I don't, we don't have much commonality in terms of what's, what our life looks like from outside. Mm Mm-hmm. But the story that you told resonated with me in this other way. And then they kind of detail how it resonated. And it's like, yes, exactly. Right. The fact that our material circumstances are very different doesn't change the fact that, that, you know, internally, spiritually, if you will, we're very much alike and you can be, uh, you know, you can be a wealthy Swede or you can be a very poor person from South America and your experiences are going to, or you could be a very poor person from Sweden and a very wealthy person from South America, but your emotional experiences can, can be so similar. You can have, and it's just that you would never know it. You would never know it. And I think that there's a lot of materialism in our society mm-hmm. or in, in our, on our, on our planet. Materialism has become the way that we see we see things and and I don't mean consumerism, but I mean, you look at someone else and you judge their well being according to their, their access to material. Mm-hmm. This person is rich. This person has groceries. This person is, um, you know, it, it is without want and this person struggles. And so there's injustice. But that's a very materialistic view because this person could have tremendous spiritual and emotional well-being and the person with, um, with wealth is, you know, spiritually bankrupt. And in terms of actual experience of the world and progress through the world, um, the, the difference in, their, in the quality of life mm-hmm. between those two people could, you know, is, is that difference is maxed out, but we think of the injustice only flowing in one direction, the materialistic direction. Right. That's an interesting uh, idea there that you're putting out. Yeah, it's very, it's cause it's unquantifiable Mm -hmm. and it's uncomfortable for us to quantify. And it's very, you know, it's, it can be used very condescendingly to say like, oh, well, these poor people are, you know, they have dancing. They mm-hmm. all get together in the, on the dirt floor and they dance. And whereas the, these people are, are uh, shut off from one another and living closed lives. And that can be very condescending if what you're talking about in that moment is material, uh, is materialism. Right. But, but if you zoom out far enough, 
and say, well, really, what do I want in life? And, and it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's a trope to say that past a certain point, adding more wealth and adding more things to your life is not the secret to happiness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of rich people are constantly trying to rid themselves of stuff. They don't try to often, they, often they don't try to rid themselves of money unless they're very rich. Right. And then a lot of their ridding themselves of money feels theatrical because they certainly keep a lot of money. But the, but the idea of living an ascetic life intentionally in order to find some spirituality, um, you know, that's rich people trying really hard to, and the thing is they don't give away their money either. <laughs> they give away their stuff, but Right. Or you know, sell it at like an auction to benefit uh, someone. Yeah. Right. But materialism is a, is a cancer of the mind and spirit and to be caught in a, in a limited view of what human life is or is capable of and thinking of it only in terms of what you have. Um, even if that, even if that is just the sort of at that basic level of like, well, this person has enough to survive without worry and that person doesn't, um, it is, it's to privilege the worry of material things even, you know, like, yeah, that person has to struggle, but that isn't necessarily the source of pain to struggle. Isn't necessarily as great as a uh, suffering as to not even. Um, to not struggle is a, is a form of psychic disconnect. It's to be less human. And those, you, you never saw right. more Complacent, miserable people. Complacency is worse than struggle in many ways. Well, just struggle is purpose and struggle is, is, I mean, struggle is energy. Struggle is what humans are meant to experience. If, if that can be said, if humans are meant to be anything and you know, when I look at those like rich kids on Instagram where it's, you know, some 20 year old sitting in his father's jet, um, and showing off his six watches or whatever, you never saw more miserable people than that. Um, they're just living lives of total pain unless they are empty of feelings. And I think there are, there are people that are empty. Um, but the only way that you could be that and not be miserable is to be, is to be hollowed out. Um, and I've traveled enough to know that material wealth has uh, next to zero effect on, on how people are really doing. Right. And my struggle is, is the same as a lot of middle-class people. I try to stuff those holes with vintage tennis shoes in the hopes <laughs> right, that right. my vintage tennis shoes will, will briefly alleviate my suffering. And in, in a lot of ways, they only increase my suffering. But in your case, like your story is something that would help people at a, at a level that is not materialistic, right? There are people struggling with, I mean, because what you're experiencing is a psychosocial, spiritual disconnect from, you know, you're like in, you're way out in the weeds and, and through no fault of your own. That's the crazy, that's the part 
that I think would resonate with people. Ah, uh, yeah. Thank you. You I know, see that, I guess. Like you're in a crazy place, but you didn't do it. Or I mean, you know, as much as you're there, of course you had a hand in it, but right. Sure. It's out of your control largely. You know, you try, yeah, but you're just trying to, you're just trying to wrestle a bear back into a Mason jar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people suffering in silence because how do you even, you know, how do you go to a Fuddruckers and tell your high school friend what, that this is going on in your life? You know, you, you're just like, how's it going? Oh, fine. Just like you do on all the shows. How's it going today, Dan? Fine. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That's good. Fine. I mean, it's so, all, it's all relative, you know? Well, but it, people don't, I mean, I, you know, I don't think, um, you're making a good argument for me to want to share it eventually. Eventually, in time. You know, like, I don't think I've ever told the story about my uh, sublingual nerve damage that I have. Have I told you that story? Have I told that here? No, I don't believe so. See, like that. Like, that's a major thing that happens one out of every few hundred thousand people. I haven't told that story. There's no reason to. Maybe it would help someone. You know, the, the one, maybe, I've met one other person in my life who went through that. And uh, so it's like, you know, I don't know. It's like, it's, it's poor me. Boo hoo. You know, I don't know. Well, but that's, unfortunately, I think that that's a contemporary disease to, to think of the experiences that you're having, um, as, as either like engines of generating sympathy or engines of generating, you know, because what we're living in a, in a culture now where sympathy equates to status where suffering equates to status because, and again, I think this is very materialistic um, because we equate suffering with virtue and suffering is not necessarily virtue, right? The, the poor are not virtuous and the rich are not corrupt necessarily. Right. It's, it is the wealth that corrupts. It's not the corrupt, it's not the corrupt that gain wealth. Although, although it, that's hard to say, right? That's hard. That is a hard thing to, that's a hard idea to advance because we're so used to thinking that only the corrupt get rich. And, and we're used to thinking as particularly us on the left as the, uh, we're used to thinking of the poor as noble. Um, there's nobility to being poor because you're, because you're suffering and suffering, um, is, is the thing that, that brings nobility. And it's true, you know, throughout literature, like the hero is never the, I mean, sometimes it's the rich person that dresses in a bat suit. Um, <laughs> but the well, only he, thing he went that through makes, a lot, he went through a lot. I mean, give that's me. right. The thing that makes him compelling uh, as a narrative device is that we, Put that we put a child through tremendous trauma mm -hmm. in order to create this character of a very rich but troubled bat person, right? But again, <clears throat> th that has been amplified in our present day, so that there's this kind of arms race of trauma, particularly on the internet. What a term! Wow, you know, arms where, race of trauma. That's amazing. Where, well, and it, and it, you know, I, I don't have to fill in, fill in what that means. No, Every, it's, everybody it's a wonderful relate. term. 
Um, and that isn't, that is no indices of character. The amount of trauma that you've experienced and stacked up doesn't, doesn't one-to-one correlate with character or correlate with spiritual development or correlate with, with happiness or sadness even. And I know it because I, I know people very intimately and I'm, I, I, and I'm thinking of two people in my life who experienced tremendous trauma. Hmm. Um, and I know a lot of people, a much greater number of people who talk about the trauma they did experience in terms that would suggest that it was, you know, a, unfathomable but in fact i find their fav- their trauma fairly fathomable right and and you know sure our conversation it our conversation has concluded i don't mean yours and mine but culturally right has concluded that trauma affects each person individually and you can have a this person can um have been covered with napalm and not be as traumatized as this person with a thorn in their paw mm-hmm but that kind of emphasizes what I'm saying, which is um, that you can have experienced tremendous trauma and not actually be, I mean, s- certainly wounded, right. but not, not incapacitated, not, it does not define you. And I have two people very close to me that experienced what would, what would I think what anyone would describe as just horrific childhoods. Um, and they both are fully fledged people, you know, with, with, re- with real souls <clears throat> and they aren't repressing it. Um, but they aren't, they've, and I think they've worked to have it not define them. And so I always contrast that with people who are working hard to define themselves by the trauma they experienced and to, uh, recapitulate their trauma and, and it's because we, uh, you know, in our, as our culture has evolved, we've just put more and more stock in the idea that that trauma is what builds character. We say it in, in no uncertain terms, but also it, it imbues our, um, what we, what we think of as Western storytelling. Right. And it's <clears throat> in order in order for that to have been true, there would need to be some truth to it. We all know what it's like to to go through um, hard times and come out changed, better for it. We've all wh- who among us hasn't fought a Balrog to the center of the earth, uh-huh, of course, and come out the other side barely recognizing our friend. That shall not pass. But. It, but it doesn't necessarily follow. There are plenty of people who have gone through tremendous trauma and came out the other side completely unchanged. And I don't mean to say that that's true of my friends. I mean to say like there are people, there are poor people that are hollowed out inside too, right? Um, there is, there is corruption in us all and where we, uh, where we put that energy and how we're made emotionally and how our minds are formed, you know, on uh, in one direction you get a Bundy and in the other direction you get a, um, 
in, in most cases, I think a very selfless person who never becomes famous. All of the, all of the truly virtuous people we never hear about. Right. Um, because, and, and in a lot of ways we don't celebrate them. Um, because, and I think that when I think about the truly virtuous people in my own life, <laughs> I, uh, there are very few and I think they make me uncomfortable <laughs> because I don't understand. But, but I feel like you've been on a spiritual journey. Oh yeah. And it feels, I mean, you're not wrong. It it's looks materialistic true. from the outside, right? Because it looks because what you've been dealing with, what you what you have been confronted with, is um, uh, you're just dealing with the material change, right? Right. You're <clears throat> you're not floating above it, but you're bouncing along, dealing with the material aspects of it. Like, oh well, this silverware has to go over here in this drawer now, and we got to negotiate this <clears throat> amount of you know this stack of papers has to go over here. But what you're really experiencing is, you know, it reverberates at a, at a level where you're dealing with epic themes, you know, Greek themes, betrayal, um, you know, like mesmerism, uh, <laughs> ultimate Frisbee, you know, the three <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. pillars yeah. of civilization. And that's the thing. You know, that's the thing I'm always trying to express when I, when I, th and this is why I often don't tell about what's going on with me. I'll be talking about something in high school and what's going on with me right in the moment is super intense. You would think that I would be talking about it on the show, but I can't because I haven't, I haven't worked it through. I haven't thought about it enough to understand like, what was the, and, and this is the fallacy of being a storyteller is to think that there's a point to everything. Mm -hmm. But I do try to find the pivot point or the, the reason that this story would be interesting or useful to people. I remember in college, I had a friend, this guy, James, who was a lovely guy and he ended up, he ended up his job, his, his, I'm sorry, his career became decking out jumbo jets bought by Russian oligarchs. Wow. He became an interior designer <laughs> for the super rich airplanes. And that's a very like Northwest thing, right? It's like there are, there are big yachts and big airplanes here because we're an airplane center and a, and a boat center. But, but to learn that like his job was to go into a seven, four, seven and say, how do I make this into a luxury apartment? And he's not like a decorator. He's a, he's an aerospace guy, but he, you know, he puts systems in. I mean, how do you have a jacuzzi in a seven, four, seven? You must be able to, Yeah. but it's, but it's also got to have some fail safes, I think, you know, like if, if the plane experiences turbulence, you don't want all of the water in your jacuzzi to go five feet straight up in the air. But he used to, in college, we would all be sitting around bullshitting and drinking and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. smoking pot. And he would say he would, it would come to him and he would start to tell a story super excited. Like, Oh, okay. Let me tell you this story. 
and he would launch into it and he had all the mannerisms of a, of a storyteller like and then you know like he got the rhythm of storytelling and you see this a lot in kids where they get the rhythm of a joke but they don't get the they don't understand the psychology of a joke or like so how, to, tell, how to tell a joke to make a joke funny. Like they repeat make it, the joke and they don't quite do the punchline or they don't quite build up the tension the way it needs to go. Yeah, exactly. And he got the, he would get into this, he would get into stories and they would go and they would go and you know, he would say, and then I was coming around the corner and, and, uh, you know, and my car lost traction on the road. And then this, there was this motorcycle and it crossed over into my lane. And then the motorcycle like went back into its lane and then I regained traction and we went by each other. And then I, you know, the car, you know, then the lights went out and I was driving in the, and it had no headlights, but then they came back on and then I was driving, you know, and you're just like, okay, all right. What is the, where is the, where's this going? And his stories were all just a series of events that all resolved themselves. And you realized after a point that he could just, he could keep, he could keep telling that story for six hours because it doesn't have a point. There never was a, there never actually was anything happening. It was just a day day in his life. And somehow he didn't understand what stories were, Um, which is not just that you make, um, that you put words in an order um, where you're, where you're remembering that you were once in a place (laughs) and, and you know, that's um, that ends up being part of part of what, what requires so much time, you know, is to, is to digest and often to digest is to find out that the point of the story was something very other than what it looked like at its time. I think I'm still processing um, my w- long walk across Europe. And it's been 20 years. And I haven't understood it. And it may be, honestly, that I never do. And so I've failed to really adequately tell it uh, because I don't get it. And that's been, that's been very hard um, because honestly, I think that I set out in order to, you know, I, I set out on it, on the trip in order to create a story Um, and not a Paul Thoreau story, but a story of uh, deprivation and redemption, Mm -hmm. a story where I struggled and the struggle produced something um, that it was an eat, pray, love Mm -hmm. uh, before eat, pray, love. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's what made me very suspicious of the book, eat, pray, love. And I got into a fight with her one time at a party um, because I, I think, ill-advisedly said, I don't know. I feel like your book is a little neat. 
And I think it has created a, a false idea in people that they go on a trip and they eat and they pray and they love, and then they come back and write a book about it. And, um, their lives are forever changed. Like, I just don't, I just think that's a little too cute. And what I didn't fully understand is that, um, the author of eat, pray, love, um, whose name just briefly escapes me, but I'm looking it up. Mm -hmm. She and I have met, several times and um oh yeah it was it was a movie oh elizabeth gilbert and elizabeth gilbert that's right elizabeth gilbert is a is an old friend of john hodgman's and they knew each other if not in college then when they were young and so she and i have been thrown together several times and what i failed to understand when i took her on at this party is that she's very smart and <laughs> very articulate and she kind of just burned me, you know, mm. fl just flamed me with a flamethrower. And I was very lucky that we had kind of taken ourselves away from the party and we were, you know, we were together in a back room. Um, nice. and it was, you know, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't that I, you know, <laughs> grabbed her by the hand and said, come into the back room with me. I've got some criticism of your book. <laughs> it just it so happened that way that we were in a group of people and then other, some people left and we were more or less left alone except for Hodgman standing there as uh, bearing witness on this excoriation. And I was like, you know, you know, now that I've, now that I've got you here, let me just give you my like overview of the cultural phenomenon of your book and how it made you a rich person. And also it made you a, uh, like a byword for a certain kind of spiritual journey that feels very materialistic. And, uh, boy, she just put me right into a, well, it was a bear into a mason jar, but she succeeded. I was the bear, and the mason jar was her beating me up. Mm. And uh, yeah, thank God that it didn't happen in the middle of the living room because I, because I would have been so ashamed that I think I would have gone and drowned myself. Uh, it was just in front of Hodgman, and he was used to seeing me and, at my best and at my worst. But that version of a story is what I wanted when I went on that walk. And it was, it's the, it's the grand tour. It's the, it's the classic one of those, but I had a, a different vision of it. You know, I was going to reduce myself to, to poverty of, uh, and, and cosplaying poverty, frankly, in that I had four pairs of underwear and four pairs of socks and a flashlight and a journal and two pairs of pants. Mm -hmm. And I lived in those, you know, with, with that, with those threadbare clothes by the end for over six months of just like, uh, the most basic locomotion. But, uh, I, you know, I had it explained to me by a girl in Romania at one point that, I mean, we, we had stayed up all night talking and at some point she said to me, I really wish, and she didn't speak English. So it was a, it was one of those conversations where I was speaking English and she was speaking Romanian, but it was mutually intelligible because again, the number of 
possible human experiences is actually fairly limited. Everybody's got right. a soul. Everybody's right. got. A, but what she, you know, what she explained to me in Romanian was, uh, basically, I wish I were rich enough to be as poor as you. And That's interesting. I wasn't able to protest because she had, she'd found something fundamental. You know, she said, I'm too poor to, to play around being poor. And what, what she meant was when this was all over, I was going to go back to being rich. Right. And even if I didn't, even if I spent the rest of my life, like Siddhartha sitting under a tree, it would have always been from a place of being rich. You know, Gandhi was rich. And in right, a lot like of a ways. lawyer or something, right? Yeah, I know, yeah. wealthy. And, and, and Gandhi was, even in his most ascetic, was treated as a very rich person. Mm-hmm. You know, he was even... You you can eat nothing but dalbot for a year, but still, or for a lifetime, but still be be well. Not just, ma- and this is the thing: not materialistically wealthy, but wealthy. And I and it really you know it contextualized for me my whole affair. Um, but I spent I spent nine months beseeching God to set a bush on fire, please anything. And there were, you know, there were a handful of times when, um, you know, like the movie interstellar, God threw a book off a shelf, but who knows if it wasn't Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> it's true. But, but the true experience either of getting hit by lightning or, or, or having something gradually dawn, um, none of that happened to me. And coming back to America and trying to figure out what happened without forcing it, you know, without trying to say, without, because everybody wants you to come back from a long, long solo walk. Right. I mean, what could be more epic than that these days? Yeah. They want you to come back with, with an epic story about your incredible experiences. And yes, but also whatever I was looking for, I didn't find. And so telling the story of all of the danger and the, and, um, and the adventure rings a little hollow Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. And I, and it was true even at the time I, it was early email days and, and I was emailing with some friends back in the States and they were asking me questions in that voice of like, Tell us about your grand adventure. Like, what have you, what amazing things. And even at the time I was like, you have no idea how mundane it is. And also how 
much time I am spending alone and how little spending alone helps you understand how to be with other people. Spending all that time alone doesn't even necessarily bring you any closer to God. And if you're, if you're, if you've intentionally put yourself in a place where you are neither loving people nor loving God, nor really even fearing God, um, you're, you know, I, I put myself in an isolation tank to the point that the only emotional experience I felt was, was, um, body pain and an occasional sunrise. That's not true. I'm being dramatic. Yeah. But, but the, and, and, and I, I told the story just recently of Hodgman saying like, not every story has a third act. Not everything that happens to you is a story. Some things just happen and then other things happen. But because I'm trying to find meaning, I try not to force meaning on things. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm agnostic about big meaning versus small meaning. I'm not, I'm no longer, I think when I was a young man, I was looking for big meaning. And as I got older, I think one of the most profound changes that happened to me was that I became content with small meaning. Um, and partly it's that I became very suspicious of big meaning. Because big meaning, when I encounter people who believe they've found big meaning, I universally find that they are dangerous. People that, that believe that they've met big meaning out in the, out in the, the vines, mm -hmm. um, they are inspired in a way that, is, that feels threatening. And I believe that they are the, they're often the revolutionaries or the religious zealots or the, the people that are politically certain, um, the people that are emotionally certain and certainty does not feel to me like the goal. And like when I see that certitude expressed, mm -hmm. it's like, Get the away from me. Cause I don't, I'm not following a flag, right? Don't, ho don't hoist a flag and expect me to rally to it. And I, and I, I'm very, you know, and obviously I'm fairly contemptuous of people that do rally to flags. Not that, uh, uh, that the world doesn't need them, right? The world needs farmers, right? And the world mm -hmm. needs soldiers, but I'm neither of those. nor merchant <laughs> what's left that's the problem yeah right trapper R ranger maybe ranger <laughs> i don't know wizard um because because even a monk or a a hermit, certainly a, a minister, mm -hmm. 
they're also trying to tease out meaning from a story. And and in some cases trying to impart it to others. But they have guidance. Maybe the hermit doesn't. Maybe the hermit's just bonkers. But if you're doing it in a if you're doing it in a context of a religion or a tradition, right? And it, and of course I'm doing it in the context of a tradition, and 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 maybe even a religion in a cultural sense. But but to do it with guidelines is to you know is to necessarily have it prescribed prescribed and and proscribed in a, in a different sense and that's never been that has never seemed to me to be the path i mean i've I routinely will go off the path and walk alongside the path but through sticker bushes and in and knee deep in mud to arrive at the same destination as the people that stayed on the path. And that frustrated me for decades. Why am I over here? There's the path. Everybody's on it. They're, they're, they're walking in, in gentle conversation along an even grade. And there's the destination. And that's where I'm headed to. Why am I here? Why am I here wearing this shirt made out of jute? And, swarmed with mosquitoes and, and, and cut up with these, these, uh, sticky vines. I'm just headed there and I'm going to be late, but I needed to, I did it over and over. Oh, you guys are, are headed up there in the path. Well, I'll meet you there, but I'm going to go this way. Not even the road less traveled by the place where there isn't a road. And I think I still do it. I've, I've tried more and more to be comfortable staying on the grade for the things that don't matter or for the things that, but that's the thing. I don't think there is a thing that doesn't matter. Right. If everything matters. Right. And you never know where going off the road, you find something interesting. And I think a lot of people feel like, look, uh, there are interesting things enough at the destination. There are interesting things that don't require that I submit myself to suffering that isn't necessary. And maybe it is an, an example of having spiritual or emotional wealth enough to go cosplay uh, being flayed. Although I don't, I don't think so. I think it is, I think it's something in, in a person's nature it's woven in mm-hmm. whether or not you see it. And, and ugh, it, it for a long time was described to me by people as being a component of the, it's the journey, not the destination. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, I, it's not really, I wouldn't describe it that way because that's often used to, just to, to mean like soak it up, you know, like it's the journey. I mean, the journey's got to be part of it, right? I mean, I think people who say that are people who have not succeeded in achieving whatever it was they were trying to go for, or people who maybe it turned out differently and had they had a good time getting there. 
don't but don't you see it that way don't you see well, it as part of the that the journey isn't at least a big part of the thing well the journey is the only thing in the sense that there's no point right there's no point to life you you go along and you die and what was there uh except the journey so in that yeah of course uh, it's almost it's almost obnoxiously obvious that it's the journey, not the destination. But that's not a, that's not a motivation to travel. Um, and for me, at least, it's the journey. Well, and, and as someone who, whose life, it isn't even a philosophy, whose life manner is that I go where the day takes me. You would think that that, um, that that idea that it's the journey, not the destination would be just how I govern myself. But, but it's not, you know, I guess what it is, what, what living where the day takes you is, is not knowing the destination and not seeing the destination with the, with the clarity that other people seem to. They're on the road. They see the destination. They know they're following the signs. They know where they're going. And I often end up at the same destination, but I wasn't looking for it. I was looking for, I mean, I was looking for a destination and not content to follow the signs. And when I arrive at the same destination as everybody else, I'm often disappointed, but I'll, I'll end up. I'll, I'll quaff an ale with you, uh, with you people. I had a friend named Matt who at a certain point in high school decided that he couldn't live in his parents' house anymore. Um, because he had, he was seeking something else. And I mean, spiritually, Mm -hmm. he believed that the material comforts of his parents' house were dulling his senses. And so he pitched a tent in his parents' yard and moved into the tent and was sincere. He lived in the tent and he got up in the morning and he went to school and he came home at night and he went into his tent. And I think he went into the house. His parents lived there. They, it was not a, a case where his parents had thrown him out of the house. It wasn't like me living in a, minivan behind my friend's house where I was no longer welcome, but still welcome to stay in the minivan for a while at least. No, it was a case of him seeking something and, and deciding that that meant he couldn't be comfortable because he couldn't find what he was looking for using comfort as a vehicle. Because he could, he couldn't dip his toe in and then go back. He had to. Once he put his f- foot in, he had to keep waiting. I think that even if this is all just in service of others, and in in a way in service of the road, to say like, look, I went. I went hither, I went yon, you might also need to, 
But let me just explain, like, at least at this level, at least here at the, at the, at sea level, you don't need to, I was there, I saw what there was to see. I mean, you, you might, it might be the journey, not the destination for you too. come on down into the brambles if you want, but like, um, I looked around here and, and honestly, like the, at least here, you know, the, the bike path is the, is just as good. Right. Cause I, cause I ended up, you know, I ended up in college anyway. Um, or ended up in, in the suburbs anyway. And, and I, and I think maybe the, one of the ways I judge myself the harshest is that I always, um, I always find timidity in myself when I look hard. Um, and I think a lot of the reason that I, that I try to project such a lack of timidity is that it's my greatest, it's my greatest shame that, that timidity is, is present in all the turning points, in all the, in all the real crossroads. I was not just afraid it was a di- it was the kind of timidity where you go well yeah sure but by the same token you know and and as somebody to to have wandered through the sticker bushes for 9 out of 10 days and then at the 10th day stand at a real crossroads and go well is something that i i hold my feet to the fire over and I, I guess, you know, I have a list of 10 times in the course of my life where it's like, hmm, if that, if you'd gone that way, who knows? Who knows? Maybe all roads led to here. But that seemed like a real, a real path elsewhere. And honestly, a couple of those 10 times, I stood at that crossroads with another person. And at least once the other person took the road, we bid farewell there. And I felt that I took the easier path and they went the hard way. And in the end, we ended up at more or less the same destination. Right. And, and, uh, and at the at destinations that seemed foreordained. And, you know, one of us was bartending, um, in Santorini and one of us was trying to get a job making marker ski bindings in Garmisch Partenkirchen, but in the, in the long run, and one of those things looked a lot more fun than the other, but in the long run, we were the same people that we ended up being, you know, we, we are who we are. And I don't know in, in your experience of the last year, how much you have yet experienced how much you've been tested because you're fielding right now. Mm -hmm. Somebody's hitting fly balls and you're out trying to field them, but you know, you're being tested profoundly and, and your competence is a strength. Um, but 
also your tendency to try and wash your problems away with antibacterial soap <laughs> is is something that can keep your um, can keep the the real challenge out of your mind or can um, can cause you to to leave it be and i I really believe that that your experience is valuable to other people and maybe sharing it is the only way to process it. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll have to see. <clears throat> we'll have to see what comes out of it, you know, but I feel like it's better to tell a story like that, like this, whatever. And in, in retrospect, as a retrospective story, as opposed to in the midst of it being ongoing. For sure. Couldn't so. agree more. I it, it needs some time. Yes. Either way, it needs some. People are just going to be up in arms about this. Yes, they will. They're going to be yes. all tons they're of gonna, speculation and Yeah, they're going to say what is he talking about that was very cruel. We have to be clear though that there's nothing scandalous going on. I just want to say that. It's not there's no there's no intrigue really. It's just uh, it's just stuff, you know, like it's yeah. not, it's not scandal. No, it's not scandal. And like I say that, you know, it doesn't reflect on you except that you, you know, that you took whatever paths you took that, that delivered you unto here. Right. I mean, you did make decisions along the way, but, um, but no, you're, you are absolved at least in my sense of or in my in my sense of the thing yeah but wow you're the you're the only one uh whose absolution i would seek anyway so that's <laughs> good, good to hear good to know <laughs> well but even you know i <laughs> this I, whole episode has been just about what we're not going to tell people i firmly believe that <laughs> this is going to be that, the worst episode ever <laughs> <laughs> there are so many things that i'm sure you haven't told me that still, uh, oh, yeah. you know, that still remain to be, to be seen. So yeah, when you know, you're ready like, to do I, the, I, John, I feel like it, did you watch the TV show lost? Absolutely not. Okay, I avoided when, it at all costs. Well, I, I truly enjoyed the show, but when the show, you know, it, it, the last couple seasons maybe weren't people's favorites. Uh, but the thing was that I think there was this big expectation, or at least I had an expectation and I know a lot of other people did too, that the majority, if not all of the big secrets or explanation, that things would get explained, that we would come away in the finale or at least in the final season saying, oh, I get this now. Like, this makes sense. Like, th these big questions were answered. But not only didn't they answer many of the big questions, in fact, most of the big questions, but they introduced more scenarios, situations, and and other unexplained details in the process of kind of sort of not really explaining some of the other questions that you were left feeling like, well, what was that? What just happened? And why did I invest all of this time in this show? Because, you know, you think you're going to get some answer. Um, and, and you don't. I, I told the story here on Roadwork about, about getting a colonoscopy without. Yes. And that was a similar thing where it was, yeah. where they said like, okay, well, we're going to give you this, uh, this 
anesthetic. And I said, is it possible to do it without? And they were all appalled, but they were like, well, sure. And halfway through, I regretted the decision. Uh-huh. Um, just as my daughter's mother slash partner halfway through childbirth very definitely regretted the decision to not get a spinal. But then after the baby was born, she didn't regret it. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, at a certain point during the colonoscopy, I was like, whoa, stop what you're doing. And everybody stopped uh, because I don't think they had seen someone do it without anesthetic. Uh -huh. So they were like, and they were all smiling. They were like, how's it going? Like, what's, what's up? Do you want anesthetic? And I was like, I sat there for a second going like, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then it calmed down. Like you're saying, like it stopped, it was still very uncomfortable, but it stopped hurting. And I was like, no, okay, keep going. <laughs> and, uh, and they did. And, you know, they did all the things They chomped off some polyps and, Went all the way up, you know, to between my ears as far as it felt. Yeah, right. And then they were done <laughs> and everybody laughed and I laughed and I felt weird weird for the rest of the afternoon. But but I I really feel like it, it was worth doing uh, to do it without pain medicine. But then, Dan, I mean, you and I like to wear... What level would, was the pain, would you say? Oh, it was... Oh, it was... 100% more discomfort, mm -hmm. but the discomfort created panic. Right. And your claustrophobia the, thing, I would imagine, might have been a factor, right? Well, it's the just that thing. feeling of like, oh, no, right. Like you're trapped and uh, there are all these people and you've got this thing halfway up you. You cannot run at this point. <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, it's very, very invasive, perhaps the most, the most invasive, invasive, yeah, incredibly invasive. So, I so, thought of you, I thought of you last night. I just want to ma uh, make a, a note. Um, I was laying, I was laying on the sofa and I had kind of slid down so that my head was kind of in between the pillow and the corner, back corner of the sofa where the like armrest kind of connects when the thing, yeah. you know, what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, uh, and I kind of, I, I, it was late at night and I momentarily fell asleep. And when I woke up, I felt this feeling of, like I was trapped. Like I was, you know, my head was in a, like a vice or something. I was trapped. And, uh, I very quick, I almost like I started to like panic for just a split second of like, oh my God, oh my God, what's happening. And then I, and then I realized where I was and what was going on. I, I was relaxed again. But I thought of you immediately. I'm, this is like what John is feeling. This is yeah. what John feels. Yeah, it's 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 a bad scene. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, I don't have a medica meditation practice, but <laughs> or the I'll, or maybe I do. I mean, maybe it's like I think you're always in a state of meditation. Yeah, some somewhat like <laughs> to, fifteen percent in at all times, <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, but I haven't had a claustrophobic or panic event in a long time, not in a year. And, you know, I was in Hawaii this, this winter and I had, uh, I had several snorkeling attempts and none of them were very relaxed or comfortable. Mm. It was choppy waves. It was, I had a, 
my snorkel malfunctioned for a day oh. and I didn't realize it cause it's a complicated operation and I didn't see that one of the parts was dislodged and you know, like the, most of the time. Also, I don't like snorkeling with other people. I don't want them around me. I don't like them signaling to me. I don't want them coming close to me. Um, I I like to be snorkeling with other people who are 20 yards away mm-hmm. or 15 yards away. And uh, uh, close enough that if, you know, if I was like, help, uh, they would be able to come. But, but, um, but I don't want to, I'm not out there to party with, with people. And, uh, and I never, never, never got so that it was, it was nice. Um, but I never panicked and I never, uh, I never felt that awful feeling. I just was like, this is hard and not fun. And I've, I have read too many magazine articles in the last two years about people dying, snorkeling in Hawaii to feel at all like. I'm chill. You know, the whole thing just feels like even though this feels chill, it could, you could die at any moment. Yes. But, uh, but to be relieved of panic as a constant, um, ghoul, you know, wow, it was really something. And, uh, I mean, it remains really something. I haven't had it in a couple of years now and I don't you know knock on wood I don't want to I don't want to have it but but yeah it's uh mm-hmm. I think I think we all have these terrible trials I can't imagine what it would be like to live your entire entire life without this kind of trial and I doubt very much that anybody does um I doubt very much that you could go through life and not have at some point a, uh, a, a, a real test, you know, mm-hmm. and how you, how you, uh, how you field it is really, I don't know, man, how you field it is. I, w- I won't even say like a test of your character because as you say, um, you had a meditation practice and it wouldn't be a test of character for someone not to have a meditation practice. And if you, you know, if you had to suffer the way you did without it, you say that it would have been unbearable. Mm, I think so. And, I mean, people know, bear it. They make, they get through it. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm saying that and I'm, you know, I'm not sure, but, um, it was definitely bad. That was yeah. before I had kids, you know, you have, you have kids, you probably, probably wouldn't have, would have done something very different. I don't know. Who knows? I'm just glad, yeah. I'm glad that I had that tool to help me. Yeah. 